As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello, Odd Lots listeners. We recorded an episode with our friends over at What Goes Up. It's live today, so go check it out. It's called the Odd Lots crossover episode. Yep, we chatted with the hosts, Mike Regan and Vildana Hyrick, about a bunch of topics that are near and dear to Odd Lots listeners, ranging from the growing power of organized labor, the trillion-dollar coin, EVs, Bidenomics, and more. You can find it on the What Goes Up podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else that you get your podcast fix. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, it feels like there are many things in the news these days that are like on the edge of reality and <laughs> frankly, science fiction. More evidence that we're living in the simulation. Yes. Um, no, you are absolutely right. Uh, so first of all, we had this influx of AI technology. Everyone got very into chat GPT. And yes. now everyone's talking about future AI applications. And then we had, let's see, ooh, we have the excitement over the possibility of a room temperature <laughs> superconductor. And then even weirder, we have a lot of talk about aliens, we had the congressional hearings uh, about UFOs recently. I actually saw someone tie all of these things together recently. They thought that the LK99 coming out yeah. like the week after the congressional hearings or the week of was evidence that there are, in mm. fact, aliens and the technology has come from them. So like, like the take that with a grain of like salt. Like the aliens but, like left this little trail of yeah. hints for us. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think one of the conspiracy theories is the reason <laughs> it feels like all of this is popping up now and sort of going into hyperdrive is because the, uh, I don't know, the powers that be are laying the groundwork for us to actually find out there are aliens. Oh, so they're sort okay. of dripping it out. All right. And now the pace is picking up. <laughs> And so it, it's coming, Joe. So here's the thing. I do not believe in it. I'm, I'm like a deep UFO skeptic to the point where I've almost like tuned out all the news. If we do have a room temperature superconductor, I don't even know what that means. Like I, I see all these people like, oh, my God, we are so back. This is going to change the world. I, I still don't really understand the significance. AI, I think it's pretty cool, but I don't know what it's going to do in, yet in terms of the economy. So... When you're faced with all these sci-fi things, Tracy, like what kind of guest do you think? <laughs> who comes to mind as someone who's, who would talk about this? Who's the first person yeah, I call? Who, yeah. Well, I guess uh, we have the perfect guest. <laughs> we no? have the perfect guest. We are going to be speaking with Paul Krugman, opinion writer for The New York Times, professor at City University of New York, of course, a Nobel Prize winner in economics. And I read on the Internet that he was inspired to be an economist because of science fiction at least according to a website I'm reading. And so I think to understand the economics, the implications, the thoughts around aliens, AI, superconductors, what they mean for the world and the economy, obviously the first name we call is Paul's. I think this is your first time on our podcast. So Paul, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Oh, thanks. I think it is my first time. I'm so uh, proud that the first time you're coming on Odd Lots <laughs> is to talk about aliens. I'm so happy. I know. Of, of, of all the various things we could be talking about, but hey, I'm... I'm pretty bored with inflation. Yeah, you know, God, inflation, sure. the Fed, soft landing, fiscal policy, the $600 checks, this recovery versus the other one. It's so boring. It's so tired. Paul, do you think there could be uh, life elsewhere in the galaxy? I would think that it's extremely unlikely that there isn't. I oh, mean, it, it, it's, 
there there is an argument that says that uh, you know that particularly that complex uh, life may require some very very special circumstances, and we might actually be alone out here. But that's well, <laughs> I guess that sounds unlikely. It doesn't seem like that it should be that hard for there to be someplace else where complex life has arisen. But it, here's a, an argument for that I don't see very often which is that if there is other intelligent life out there, just given the time scale of things, it must have evolved hundreds of millions of years before we huh. did. So if there are aliens out there, they are either wiped themselves out one way or another or are on a level so far beyond us that <laughs> you know the meaningful interaction is impossible. So in terms of there being actual aliens you know, landing and kidnapping people and all of that, that doesn't seem to me to be a very plausible story. So can I ask a step back question, which <laughs> is, you know, Joe mentioned that he read on the internet, always a reliable source, that you got into economics because of your interest in science fiction. I remember you wrote a paper, I think it's a very long time ago, a theory of interstellar trade. But why does this area mm. interest you? How did you get into Why did you fiction? say yes to coming yeah, on our podcast? Pretty much. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, so it's actually very specific. I read as a teenager Isaac Asimov's foundation novels. And if anybody's ever read the novels, they're about how galactic civilization is collapsing, but is saved by mathematical social scientists. Hmm. And I wanted to be one of those guys. So that's how I got into economics, or at least that's the story I like to tell, which is also, <laughs> by the way, why, why I cannot bear to watch the Apple TV Foundation series, which completely ditches the whole premise. Uh, it may or may not be good TV, but it has nothing to do with huh. what Isaac Asimov wrote. So, but anyway, Wait, but that so was, it was quite specific. In science fiction, economists save the world? In one particular <laughs> a classic science fiction series. And they're, they're not economists exactly. They're mathematical social scientists. But, you know, that's as close as I could get is doing economics. You, you did write a paper, as Tracy mentioned, on interstellar trade. What did you, yeah. what, what is that all about? I mean, like, what is, oh, okay. what would make, say, interstellar trade any different between trade between U.S. and China? It's the paper I wrote when I was very, very young. I was a frustrated assistant professor, and it finally got published decades later. And so it was mostly a blow-off steam paper. I was having some fun with the fact that, well, look, shipping times, for interstellar commerce would be very, very long. You know, not the time it takes to get from Shanghai to Los Angeles, right, but right. the time it takes to, to cross uh, 20 light years. And at that point, the interest costs on uh, shipping, you know, stuff in transit are going to be a pretty significant part of the expense. But how much time is spent on transit? Because of the theory of relativity, we know that the amount of time oh. received on the spaceship is going to be different from the amount of time perceived on a planet that remains stationary. And it's always all kind of silly. Uh, but, you know, I, I, as I said, I think in the introduction that that the results of this paper will be uh, true but useless, which is <laughs> the opposite of what is typical in economics. Uh, I, so, <laughs> wait, I thought that was typical, true but useless. I thought that was what's typical in economics. All right. Well, okay, anyway. Sorry, but, sorry. Uh, not, to, yeah. not to malign the whole profession. Sorry. I had some fun yes. uh, and uh, helped helped keep me more or less sane during those, you know, pre ten year years that every academic has to go through. Was it peer reviewed? I can't imagine, but no. What actually? Well, actually, it, I sent it off. It, the Journal of Political Economy used to have a joke paper section at the end, miscellany, and I sent it. And the then editor didn't get any of the references. There were, in fact, references <laughs> to Isaac Asimov. And so he said to me, why, why is the planet named Trantor? And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, we need revisions. And I said, oh, I'm not going to do that. So I just let it sit. But it had circulated kind of in Samizdat for a long time. And eventually, the, the Journal of Economic Inquiry uh, contacted me and we said, we, we, we've heard about this paper you once wrote. Can we publish it? So Wait, we I, went. I feel like not to keep diving onto this one paper, but you know, if it if it takes an incredibly long time to ship something from here to uh, the other planet, is the but the people on the ship don't perceive it as long as those of us on Earth, right? Because time is slower. Yeah. Time, okay. So and, you, and to, yes, that's the point. Because yeah. if you're traveling at close to the speed of light, and okay. unless you can do that, then none of this makes any sense. 
then the subjective time is going to be much shorter. And I actually then went on a you know, very yeah. fancy economics theorem proving to say that that oh, doesn't yeah. matter because the relevant opportunity cost is, uh, is the time it takes on the planet. Anyway. I'm looking at it now. I found it online. There's some great uh, It's really and, funny. Yeah. Also, like in a very yeah. dry way, there's a line that like interplanetary trade, while of considerable empirical interest, raises <laughs> no major theoretical problems. Among the authors who have not pointed this out are Olin and Samuelson. I love that. Yeah, actually, uh, Jeff Frankel, you may know, of Harvard wrote oh, yeah. a, a sort of companion paper around the same time called Is There Trade with Other Planets, in which he pointed out that if you sum up total world exports and total world imports, you know, countries report the amount they export, the amount, they don't actually match. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and that the world as a whole appears to export more than it imports. Hmm. You know, Every anyway. statistical agency around the world wants to flatter their numbers of exports and shave a little bit off the imports, I guess. Yeah, maybe. There, okay. there are for, right, yeah, and a fair bit, uh, yeah, stuff that is not yeah. also that it's just, if you smuggle stuff in past customs, right. it shows up as an export, but not as an import. Right. Anyway. Do you pay attention to things like the UFO hearings, like in right now, like how engaged are you, like when you see these headlines no, about someone claiming? I think we've got enough, you know, there's enough, there's enough weird stuff in the world. Although I will say that, by the way, the, the theory that says that the aliens are selectively releasing uh, technologies, that's a subplot in the movie Men in Black. I don't oh. know if people remember this, but the agency that employs uh, Will Smith is how they finance themselves by selectively releasing alien huh. technologies. Uh, I think that Velcro was supposed to be one of them. That's so, right. Uh, they, <laughs> they joke about uh, that, yeah. So, that, that's, so you really should be, it should be even more conspiratorial than people are making it. It's not just that the aliens are doing this because they're about to be found out. It's that the um, government agents in black suits are selectively releasing these alien technologies. Mm. Well, let me ask, I guess, the big question, which is, how would you, as a economist, you know, a rigorous, well-grounded researcher in this field, how would you go about thinking or incorporating something like aliens slash alien technology into the mm. way you think about the economy? Yeah, the aliens, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, again, it's just if there are aliens out there, if, if they exist, they almost have to be immensely more advanced, you know, basically on a different plane. And it's not clear that they would have any interest in, in dealing with us. But the technologies, if there are, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's um, they're leaking out of Area 50. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. There are really big technological things happening. Of course, the Technological progress is the ultimately the main driver of economic growth. So these are important things if they are if they pan out. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com.
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's talk about technological progress as a driver of economic growth, because it seems like that. So it's like, OK, there is this thing that people are talking about, which is the possibility of superconductors that can exist at room temperature instead of really cold temperatures which supposedly might have all kinds of implications for battery tech or power transmission or electricity consumption. I don't really totally get it. I'm not a scientist, but it seems good. But on the other hand, technologies exist and they are exciting, but they don't necessarily show up in the economic aggregates. They don't suddenly make GDP growth go from 3 to 3% to 10% just because there's some new breakthrough. Why don't they? Why don't we get technological inventions mm. that suddenly cause GDP growth to grow at a much faster pace? Oh, well, I mean, we certainly do get inventions that make a difference, okay. uh, that, that show up a lot. I mean, it, so if you think about, you know, we have a pretty good idea. There was an acceleration in U.S. productivity growth for about uh, 10 years, from the mid-90s to the mid-90s, that was something like 1% a year faster growth than before or since, which we think was because business finally figured out what to do with IT. Some of it's the internet, some of it's just actually some of it is finally figuring out how to use barcodes to do effective inventory management or you know mm. more prosaic things. But basically there was a clear bump in productivity that's was associated with the, the rise of, of IT and networks and all of that. And you could say, well, that's it. Uh all, all we got was 10 years of one percent faster growth, but the that's a 10% bigger economy. Mm. And there's almost no conceivable economic policy that would mm. raise U.S. growth that much, right? So even the, what was relative to a lot of what people had hoped for or predicted, even though we, the results of IT have been somewhat disappointing, there's still a huge relative to anything that, you know, that any presidential candidate could plausibly promise to accomplish. How good are we at actually measuring technology's impact on productivity? Because I remember this was a talking point a few years ago, the idea that, well, technology is, in fact, improving, but the way that it's improving and sort of feeding into the economy is not well captured mm. by yeah. statistical methods. There's actually two levels of that. First of all, the way that we actually sort of measure technology is god-awful, except not clear how else you do it. I mean, we think that we have ways of measuring the contributions of tangible stuff, like an increased stock of capital mm -hmm. uh, to economic growth. And what economists do is they add up all of those things, that's growth accounting, and then whatever's left, they say that's technology. You know, it's a really pretty poor technique. It's basically technology is the measure of what you can't explain otherwise. That's not great. But on top of that, then there's the unmeasured, as you say. We don't have a very good handle on, you know, what is the value of, of streamed entertainment hmm. one way or another? You know, for, for me, it's, I'm really into live musical performances and can't get into, you know, can't make time in my life to go to as many as I would like to, but I can watch a lot of live musical performances on YouTube. That's a pretty big, I would probably be willing to pay thousands of dollars a year for that. As it happens, I don't have to pay that, but it's, and that's not captured by the GDP statistics. And there's probably a bunch of things like that to take something that's less sexy, but healthcare, the fact that doctors can treat lots of things that were untreatable before hmm. is a really big thing, but you know, it has always been true, but not always, but it's been true for a very, very long time. You know, if you, if you start from the late 19th century, when started to finally get big improvements in public health because uh, people stopped getting their, their drinking water from a well next to the outhouse. But those are huge gains that are really not at all captured by our official statistics. So probably it's the, it's the case uh, you know, that there's been much more economic growth than the numbers 
show or the much more much more improvement in the quality of life anyway than the numbers show. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up the live music. I was talking to Tracy earlier and I have this memory of us running into each other. It might have been like 2011 or 2012 at some conference in New York City and everyone else was mingling and you were smartly in the corner watching, <laughs> I think, a live video of the Arcade Fire in 2011 oh, or yeah. 2012. Who, who do you like these days? Any uh, any band wrecks? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's fine if bunch. not. Okay. I and I and I worry when I say this that I'm going to insult bands I love by forgetting to mention them. But the last concert I went to, which was just at the beginning of the summer, was Lark and Poe, which is a sisters from from Atlanta who do mostly the blues huh. and are just incredible. I'm away for the summer. Actually, I went to a little. I won't get undisclosed location, but I went to just a bunch of local musicians doing. Uh, they're call, calling themselves the Grateful Dread, regularly inspired <laughs> uh, Grateful Dead covers, but which was great fun. But uh, the next thing I'm going to is something called a band that's been around for a while called Warpaint, huh. and uh, does sort of vaguely psychedelic stuff. I'm a huge fan of Boy Genius. They've been getting quite a lot of play, but actually the trouble is I like I like the more intimate concerts. Yeah. And the next Boy Genius performance is at Madison Square Garden. Mm. Uh, sorry, that's I love the band, but I, I wouldn't love that experience. So, you know, there's a bunch. I mean, I, that's the thing. I subscribe yeah. to, I think, around around 40 channels on YouTube, which are almost all indie musicians of one form or another. And I'm going to have to check out uh, Larkin Poe. I'm looking them up now. It looks really good. It looks like the kind of thing that I would like. I want to go back. We're talking about technological impacts on macro and someone is going to get really mad. I've defended the fa the sort of famous, infamous internet fax machine comment on the sort that you made because it doesn't seem like 1% growth, even over 10 years is really changes the economy like that much or as much as you would think given the sort of like huge upheaval that we've seen that the internet caused like is there any way to sort of know early on or in real time what a technology is going to do to the economy or is it the only kind of thing where you can say afterwards this seems to be what happened here Okay. What people don't know, by the way, is that comment about the internet yeah. and the fax machine was in the context of a piece that was meant to be funny. Oh, it was a piece that was written <laughs> I for. I the defended it York seriously. I've taken a lot of flack on Twitter. No, Joe, you were trolled by Paul Kirkman. And now I'm discovering that no. I was defending a. Uh, a... No, I, I think it is actually defensible, and I, I will yeah. agree with you on that. But, but what was actually happening was that was a piece where, before I worked for the Times, so I was asked to write a piece looking back from 100 years in the future uh, at what had happened. Yeah. And so I wrote you know, a bunch of things, and many of them were deliberately counterintuitive, some of which have turned out to be true and some of them not. But if you want to, you know, the piece ends by, by saying that my day job is working at a, veterinar at, at a veterinarian, but I'm hoping that this piece will get me on the lecture circuit. So, um, but but no, the point was, in fact, if you're looking for the transformative economic effects of the internet, they are pretty elusive in the data. Right. Actually, to take a even more extreme example, the you know smartphones. The iPhone is introduced, I think, in two thousand six. And if you look at the official productivity numbers, the period since two thousand six has been lousy for productivity. It's been a long productivity drought. The boom in productivity, such as it was, the boom let was between about 95 and 2005, uh, which is more, huh. much more the fax machine era than the internet era. Wait, I have a really basic question, which is if you get a brand new world-changing technology like the internet or, say, a room temperature superconductor, would that count as, like, an exogenous shock or an, or an endogenous, endogenous shock? Yeah. I mean... At some level, everything's endogenous, right? If you go deeper, <laughs> at some level, it's all quantum mechanics. But in terms of being something that, like, look, the, the, the long sweep of technological progress that begins you know, about two centuries ago or a bit more, that's clearly endogenous. Given that we had whatever it was, the change in mindset, the change in the way that, that people behave that caused the industrial revolution and everything that followed, then of course there were going to be a lot of explorations of new possibilities, lots of new technologies. 
any individual technology is there's a strong element of we stumbled on something. Mm. Uh, and so when you stumble on something that actually has big economic implications, that's even more fortuitous. It's really not predictable in advance. Either way, you can have something like, I think many people would have expected to see a, a much bigger visible impact on the economy from smartphones than we appear to have seen. Uh, but on the other hand, who would have thought that shipping containers would matter as much as they mm. have turned out to for the global economy? So it, it's really in the sense of being really hard to have predicted either that the innovation would happen or that it would matter a lot. Yeah, it's it's exogenous for all practical purposes. You know, it's really important that we use the same gauge and size shipping containers as they do in China. I wonder how we would even coordinate that with another planet. They might have mm. like a totally different size shipping container at their ports. That could be a very uh, difficult interstellar shipping container. Yeah, it could be a very yeah, different the coordination is, problem. And the trouble is, they're, if they're forty years li light years yeah. away, uh, the negotiations to establish <laughs> a common standard might take <laughs> a couple of millennia. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right, like. It's hard enough to come up with common standards here on Earth. I want to pivot. I want to ask you about AI, actually. And mm. uh, I'm curious, like, people, you know, every technology has its things, like, oh, people worry about which jobs are going to get disrupted and so forth. And then with AI, it feels like there's, like, deeper angst that many people have because it can think and it can write. And I've expressed my own anxiety. Like, well, will I be out of a job in a few years as someone who, like, does words on the Internet for a living? because ChatGPT is pretty good at doing words. Like, does it feel different to you in some way in terms of, or is it, yeah, we have tech, you know, we are always getting better at things and it's sort of part of a continuous process of technological gain. Well, this looks like it may be, there are things that are, are kind of narrow gauge technologies that affect a very, very particular sector and, but not that many people. Um, this stuff, although what we're what we're calling AI, isn't really arguably, but but the stuff we're calling AI anyway, does look like it's going to affect a lot of activities. The pessimists say, or the you know, the the skeptics say, look, it's not really thinking, it's not creative or original. It's just sort of processing what other people say, and it's just basically super enhanced autocorrect, which is all kind of true, but then how many people out there in the real world are in fact being creative? How mm. much of the work that we pay people a lot of money to do is in fact a lot like uh, super expanded autocorrect? And I think the answer is quite a lot. Mm. So this is potentially a, a really big thing and it could displace a lot of jobs. And interestingly, it's uh, the jobs that it might displace are going to be ones that are kind of high prestige, high education. You know, we're a very, very long way, as far as I can tell, from being able to, to have robot plumbers. But we may be very quite, quite close. In fact, maybe already be there to having uh, robot journalists. So, yeah, this is serious. So you obviously talk and write about economic policy quite a lot. From that perspective, what would be the best way to handle AI? If, if you're worried mm. about society, if you're worried about things like inequality, what would be the best economic policies to put in place? I don't think this one calls for a lot of remedial policies mm. other than simply having a, a, a strong social safety net. It's too pervasive and too diffuse, I think. You know, it's, it's something, when you have something like, it's not a technology, but in some ways it's similar, you have something like the uh, the China shock, that mm -hmm. period of about 10 years where we had a, a real surge of imports from China. The thing about that was, actually the number of jobs displaced was probably not, was like a million, between one and two million, but they were very concentrated. There were just, communities that were effectively wiped out. Hmm. And that's where the idea that you probably should have had some kind of remedial policy that tried to sustain or at least help these communities adjust or help them downsize or something so that the social impact would be less. That kind of made sense. But now if you have something that is going to be wiping out certain kinds of white collar jobs, but more or less evenly across the country, it's not going to be doing any uh, a whole lot 
more or less in any particular region. It's not going to be affecting any particular social group, except in the sense that it may be devaluing certain kinds of higher education. I don't think there's much you can do about that, aside from just trying to ban the technology altogether, which isn't going to work. So I, I actually not sure that, that aside from the fact that we should have a society where you don't starve or go without medical care, if technology does have to take your job, uh, I'm not sure there's much more you can do than that. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm going to break the pattern and tr actually kind of ask a question that might be relevant to the current economic data. But I was thinking about going back to the 90s and the sort of productivity boom that we saw in sort of the mid 90s and beyond. And the other thing about that time beyond just the sort of advent of the internet and a lot of information technologies is it was a strong economy. It was robust. There was robust growth. Yeah. There was robust employment growth. And one theory that sometimes gets aired is that productivity is downstream of robust growth in tight labor markets. And that when there's tight labor markets, that firms have to find ways to implement new technologies because they can't just hire someone cheaply. That forces the sort of like genuine productivity gained technology to actually be incorporated. Of course, we have very tight labor markets right now in the U.S. Like how much credence do you buy that? I remember Janet Yellen giving a speech and I want to say like 2014, like the reverse hysteresis and this idea that like if we run the economy hot for a while, that it can really pay off in terms of these productivity gains. And we might be getting a test of that now. Like how compelling do you find that? It's one of those things where I take it seriously and have absolutely no idea whether it's true. <laughs> there is some case to be made that running the economy depressed leads to losses that you basically never make up. Mm -hmm. So that a weak economy for a sustained period of time uh, leads to lower productivity growth for many, many years thereafter. And you can read some of the evidence from the 2008 financial crisis and aftermath to say that. On the other hand, that isn't always true. The, the Great Depression in the United States appears to have had zero impact on, on mm. all of that. Uh, they, if, you, if you look at the economy in the late 40s, it was just about where extrapolating trends from 1929 mm. would have led you to think it would be. Now, it's true that we did run a very, very high-pressure economy for four years Right. At, in the 1940s, so maybe that was what... But actually, The original a, frying pan part. chart. Yeah, I'm not sure if readers will know about that, but yeah, the frying pan charts that, that I've been promoting too. But productivity did pretty well even, even during the 30s, even with a very depressed economy. Huh. It's possible. Right now, it'd be nice to believe that by running a, a genuinely full employment economy, arguably for the first time since the, the late Clinton years, that we are setting the stage for an era of good productivity growth. But I don't know that. And I think I can make a firm prediction is that we will never know that. We would even though, you know, looking back 10 years from now, if productivity growth was high, we won't know whether that was because finally we got sufficiently expansionary ma macro policy or because we just happened to luck into getting uh, usable AI for the first time. 
Yeah, Tracy, if there's one thing I feel like I've learned from, you know, sort of covering economics over the last 15 years or whatever, is that mm. debates never actually get resolved. <laughs> it's like you can have all the data and then it's yeah. just two people tell a different story. Yeah, no, that is very As true. the same two people selling the same two different stories decade after decade. That's yes. what really drives me crazy. It's always the same people on the same side. <laughs> now, whatever the data are, it doesn't actually speak too well for my profession. Wait, since Joe asked a question that brought us back to more modern times and more relevant themes, I want to ask one too, which is, would an alien invasion be deflationary or mm. inflationary? A very serious oh, question. I, I think that we can say pretty sh almost surely it would be inflationary. Wars almost always are. Mm. An uncontested alien invasion, I guess it kind of depends on on how they run the occupation, but, the, uh, <laughs> but actual wars are have been in are always inflationary. I can't think of one that wasn't. They always involve big government spending. Uh, actually, they always involve a collision between large spending and at least temporarily reduced productive capacity. So, yeah, uh, you may recall that back when I was you know, desperately pleading for more fiscal stimulus. Oh, that's right. The, yes. I, I said that the government should lie and claim that we were facing an <laughs> imminent alien invasion and that in order to to fight that imminent alien invasion, what we needed was better infrastructure. So we should have a, a big public infrastructure platform to because things that people would never agree to simply in order to make people's lives better, they will agree to it in order it, to fight invasion. It is interesting the degree, and you definitely see this over the last couple of years, the degree to which big public investment programs mm. seem to go down easier politically if it can be couched in the language of geopolitical conflict. And so even like, th say, like some of the decarbonization efforts in the U.S., the IRA, a lot of it is almost either implicitly right. or explicitly, oh, because China is doing this too. And suddenly that that brings out the votes a bit more. Well, yeah. I mean, we have two big public infrastructure programs. Well, three. We have one, which is just straight infrastructure. Yeah. But that was to, to some extent said, well, you know, we're falling behind them. China, we need to do something. Uh, then we have the CHIPS Act, which is explicitly about countering China. And then, yeah, some of the, the IRA stuff has been sold as being a national security concern mm -hmm. as well. So sure, it, it's crazy. But yeah, in order to provide people with just a, a, a better economy and a better life, you generally can't get that past the, the deficit goals unless it's in the interests of fighting evil outsiders. Hmm. I want to ask another AI question. I mean, I know you say like, okay, there's not some obvious like remedial policy, but it is interesting that there is this possibility that it disrupts a lot of currently like high status jobs, people with a high yeah. level of education, white collar work, et cetera, which I guess in people's minds feels different than like a loom on you know, a shop floor or something like that, in which people think, well, this is different in some way. Historically, are there exam other examples that feel similar where like, no, this really disrupted something that at the time was seen as like very high status prestige work? Well, really high status prestige work, I'm not sure, but relatively high. I mean, we talk about the Luddites. The Luddites were not the poorest, least skilled workers. The Luddites were skilled weavers. Mm. Who were actually relatively high wage. What had happened was that the factory production of yarn had created an abundance of yarn, but the weaving was still being done by highly skilled manual workers, manual workers, but high high skill. And then along came the power loom, and suddenly the relatively high wage workers found their jobs disappearing, and that those, they were the ones who went out and and rioted. So it's certainly not the case that technology is always going to favor mm. uh, the higher wage people at the expense of the lower wage people. And, you know, there's probably a lot of quiet stuff in there that right. this has probably been going on to some extent. I mean, one of the things that about U.S. inequality is that there was a time when people said, oh, it's all about education differentials. But the college wage premium hasn't really gone up right. for a long time now. But it's also true that a lot of information processing that used to require a human being either doesn't or can be done by fewer human beings because machine assistance helps. 
On the topic of inequality, it does feel like there is this pervasive sense that the U.S. economy is doing worse in many ways for a large chunk of the population, despite everything that we've seen in some of the hard data recently and a lot more discourse about the possibility of a soft landing. But what do you think is driving that dissatisfaction? And then secondly, you know, how do you go about, I guess, like messaging that the economy isn't that bad to the general population so that aliens don't feel the need to invade the planet to make us all feel better or worse? Yeah, it's now it's an interesting question. I mean, if you actually are asking about inequality, have recent events hurt lower income people more than higher income? That's actually not what the data says. And if anything, on the contrary, what we've seen is a, is a surprisingly fast narrowing of wage gaps. The people at the bottom of the wage distribution have done a lot better than the average. You know, Aaron Dubé has been doing, writing about this, the unexpected compression of wage inequality that's taken place in the last couple of years. So that's not really the story of why people are feeling dissatisfied. If I have to try to say why people are dissatisfied, one of it is that, look, the return of inflation after a generation when people just didn't think about it, that was a big shock. And people are going to take some time to recover from it. Then, actually, I think it's more than two things. I'm going to turn in Monty Python routine amongst <laughs> the, the reasons. But then yeah, there is partisanship. It's, it's just astonishing if you look at, at the surveys, yeah. how much. It's true for both parties, although it's even more extreme for Republicans. But an economy that was really great as long as Trump was in the White House suddenly became becomes terrible, even though it's the same economy with a Democrat in the White House. But then... Perceptions are, are shaped by narratives. There's just lots and lots of surveys now, which you ask people, how are you doing? And they say, fine. Mm. And how's the economy doing? Oh, it's terrible. Which is, you know, this is relatively new in, in economics, but in other areas, we know we see that all the time. I look at crime. You know, if we had a, an epic decline in crime between about 1990 and, and the mid-2010s, really astonishing. And we have still basically have no idea why it happened. But for some reason, America became a much safer place. And all through that surveys, if you ask people, what's happening to crime, they said it's increasing. Although if you ask them, how, how do you feel about your neighborhood or your town, they were much more favorable. So there's, we've got some kind of psychology where a lot of people now believe that really bad things are happening to somebody else, somebody mm. I don't know. I hope the media isn't culpable for any of that. <laughs> you know, just going back to your point about how things like AI or things that may have compressed education labor is like, it's not really that new of a story. Guillermo Rodity Dominguez, who has been on the show, he always likes pointing out that the word computer used to refer to a profession mm. that like there used to be like, people whose tight whose occupation was computer human excel spreadsheet a human excel yeah. spreadsheet uh, yeah richard feynman richard feynman ran the computers at los alamos you've just seen oppenheimer and he, there, feynman have actually what what is clearly feynman appears there playing the bongos but he's not a, a speaking character but he ran the computer section at los alamos which was a bunch of women <laughs> who were actually computing right can I ask, we sort of glossed over this within the context of alien technology, but are you paying attention to the superconductor stuff? Like, and I, you know, you're really plugged in, you're online, you're probably as like online and on Twitter as much as me and Tracy is. And you see these videos of like a magnet flapping and people are like, oh my God, this is like the holy grail. Like, how do you, this is like a question I've been asking everyone, like, how do you as a sort of intelligent plugged in person try to like process what's going on when you see things like this happening in the world this one is really hard yeah i mean i am extremely online i actually hate when my uh, when my phone tells me how much screen time i've had each day i often feel that i can go online and get reasonably reliable assessments of stuff in areas of which i personally know nothing because i kind of think that i do know enough 
to recognize people who have some idea what they're talking about. Yeah. I know what actual research sounds like. This is one of those areas where I can't make it out. It's It sounds like there are reasonable people on both sides. There's no obvious motivated reasoning driving this. And uh, I'm kind of just saying, I have no idea. And not only am I not entitled to an independent opinion, I don't know whose opinion to trust. Hmm. I just have one more sort of theoretical question getting back to the beginning of this conversation and science fiction. But what's your favorite economic system in science fiction, if you had to choose? This is a good one. Oh, well, that's interesting. Most uh, science fiction either doesn't specify or kind of assumes that it's not very different from what we have now. So there are very few sort of serious alternatives. If you look at the Star Trek uh, universe, um, that appears to be, nobody says it, but it actually appears to be sort of idealized Marxian socialism, right? Uh, That's uh, the one that you always see. I've heard that before, that that's like the socialist. Yeah. Literally live long and prosper. Well, live long and prosper. Actually, that's actually the opposite. The, you, you, America is the country where we uh, we <laughs> prosper and die well, and die early. But um, prosper and die. The, uh, <laughs> Live short and prosper. <laughs> yeah, but if we you know, the replicator, you just say uh, tea, Earl Grey, hot, and there it is. And uh, supposedly it's an economy of total abundance. Although, you know, I'm occasionally tempted to yell at the screen. But services are most of the economy, and replicators can't do that. Uh, although I guess androids can. But other than that, it's really hard to see very much. People are not very original uh, <laughs> in, in trying to think about economic systems. There is a real paucity of, of ideas for something different. And we've seen, I, there's very little sort of central planning fantasies out there in, in economics. There are some people who try to invent a, we're going to have some kind of system of points or so on, but what they don't seem to realize is that, that what, what they're actually re- doing is reinventing capitalism. Other than that, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of, of interesting speculation. It's possible that we've already explored all the possibilities there are, but I don't know. It's you really The one thing I had to see is that a fair bit of sort of fairly thoughtful science fiction just kind of assumes that the future that future societies have a kind of a Scandinavian welfare state mm. that whatever else there is there's always basic income to fall back on and actually if, if sorry too much too much information but the expanse if you watch that science fiction series which was one of those things where the TV I think was better than the novels but anyway the yeah. uh, Earth's economy in the expanse appears to be a kind of a UBI society. Except that it sounds like what everybody receives if they're not employed, and they, apparently they have mass numbers of people who just have no jobs. But what they do, what they get is they get the basics to survive in kind rather than in cash. So hmm. that's a, a few. It's, but it's not. It's not a utopia. It's kind of portrayed as being kind of grim. But that's kind of where, if you look for real, seriously alternative economic systems. I can't think of one in in any of the science fiction I've read. Paul Krugman, it's so great to finally have you on Odd Lots, and it was so great to talk about things that are not just the sort of day-to-day, what's the Fed going to do next week? So really appreciate you coming on. That was a really fun conversation. So much fun. Okay, take care. And uh, yeah, great great stuff. That was fun, Tracy. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it that Paul Krugman's first appearance on this podcast yeah. is to talk about aliens. Um, you can't beat that. I hadn't thought about the challenge that would pose, which is that the time... To productivity the, statistics? Yeah, or and, and the <laughs> challenge that that would pose of like, well, the time, like the rate of interest for people in normal time versus like the payment that people demand who are like on the ship itself moving at a different time. Very interesting theoretical questions that to his point but i think that probably much of economics does not have much practical application you know what would blow your mind if you start thinking what interstellar finance would actually look like currency exchange markets and things like that where 
you have spot and forward markets and things. Wait, anyway. Can I just say something? Mm. I Foundation for Economic something fee.org, which is Foundation for Economic Education, which I think is like this sort of like libertarian, like pro-capitalist, like think tank. They have a, a way, they have an article that's saying Star Trek is not socialist. <laughs> they're, they're like really like, because I, I did, that was one of the first hit, first things that came up. Is Star Trek really socialist? No. So some people push back on that. Uh, I do think there clearly there's a gap in the market for like a really well thought out piece of science fiction that's like predicated on a very specific and creative economic system. It's funny to think about like these uh, sci-fi writers like, oh, it's going to be like points and blows like, bro, you invented money. You, you reinvented the dollar. Well done. Well, I mean, it does also get back to, you know, Paul made the point that a lot of science fiction seems to default to this idea of Keynesian abundance, yeah. right? Like mm. post-scarcity. But if anything, in 2023, like, yes, there have been a lot of technological advances, but there are serious concerns over basic resources and their availability and how they're distributed and things like that. And services, because we have yeah. so much good AI, but we don't have good robots. And so it's like when we talk about like child care, or elder care, et cetera, it's like, we really need these robots to come along if we're going to get that true abundance. Hopefully the aliens bring the robots. Yes. <laughs> okay. Please bring robots. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Paul Krugman, on Twitter. He's at Paul Krugman. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcripts, a blog, and a newsletter. And if you want to chat about like everything we talked about in here from energy, scarcity and abundance to AI to other stuff. Check out our Discord channels for all this stuff. People are chatting 24-7. Discord.gg slash oddlots. It's a lot of fun. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you like our conversations about alien technology with Nobel Prize winners, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.